Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to new and returning listeners. I am Dr. Danica Ramsey Brimberg and one of the co-hosts of the New Books and Irish Studies podcast channel for New Books Network. For today's episode, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Marie Louise Tyerkoff, who is a Leverhulme Trust postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic at the University of Cambridge, and the author of Den, the author of Den Shunahus Aaron. Welcome, Dr. Tyerkoff, to the to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Danica. I'm I'm delighted to be here. Would to begin with, would you like to tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, um, so as you just said, I'm working on a Leverhulme Trust funded project called Mapping the Medieval Mind, um, Ireland's Literary Landscapes in the Global Space at the University of Cambridge at the moment, together with my colleagues, Professor Maureen Waning and Dr. David McKay. And um, before coming to Cambridge uh, the second time, I worked um, at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies before completing a year on the um, Electronic Dictionary of Irish. That was also um, at Cambridge. That was 2018 to 19. And um, then I completed a, a research council, an Irish research council fellowship in the Department of Irish and Celtic Studies at Trinity College Dublin before returning to Cambridge uh, in 2020 to work on the current project. And would you, uh, for those listeners unfamiliar with your book, what is it about? So the book is about a medieval Irish text called Dean Hanchas Asian, um, which I suppose approximately translates to the history um, or knowledge about Ireland's famous or notable places. So there's a lot, a lot of p- packed into that title. Um, this text was, uh, I have to say, sort of compiled, and I'm going to say from the 12th century onwards, and we're probably going to return to the issue of date later on. Um, it essentially recounts the, um, the origin and the, the history of important places on the island, contains over 200 place name legends in prose, in verse, in prosimetrum, and features events and characters drawn from virtually every corner of Irish literature. And how did you come up? Uh, how did you come about with this text, or in, how were you introduced to this text? Um, very unintentionally, uh, during my PhD in early Irish at uh, University College Cork, I was working on the Middle Irish text Tochvac Evra, so the um, the courtship of Evra, or how Cucullin met his wife, in other words, and how he trained in arms. And this text was using um, material often verbatim from medieval Irish literature, so from other texts, from the Ulster cycle and uh, so on. It was also using Jean Hanachal's materials. I had to engage with the scholarship that was published on the subject and realised that um, it was not a very straightforward exercise in textual comparison um, to compare Tachvagavra to the Jean Hanachal's or to, to kind of determine how Hanachas material was u- was used in it and what exactly the sources were so um it yeah and I, I realized that um not a lot had been published on the subject that the editions were quite old that the editions separated prose from the verse um and um, I think essentially it was more kind of a topic that chose me rather than me choosing it in the end so what kind of work is the Din Hunahus Aaron, and I hope I, I would like to apologize for anybody that if I've been pronounced this correctly, <laughs> it's, it's very hard. To, it's hard to pronounce. Um, well, it's been called 
many things. So it's been called a legendary geography of Ireland or a topomythography of Ireland. Um, and it is those things, but it's also a lot more than that. It's a compilation history of um, famous Irish localities, uh, of landscape features primarily. So it's not a history of cities in the modern sense of the word, even though you do get origins for, um, you know, Dublin for both the Irish name Aklia and the um, English version Dublin. Um, and it's framed as an account, as a written account by um, a poet called Averian, who was the poet of the 6th century king of Ireland, Dermot McCarroll. But this written account is based on an oral recitation of all these places in front of Averian and Dermot and the nobles of Ireland by the shapeshifter figure Fintan McBohra, who occurs in other texts as well. And why was it so important to provide this new textual and contextual analysis? So in, in the course of my work, and more and more so um, that I've been working on it, I think Jean-Hanne Aaron is one of the most important intellectual accomplishments that was ever produced in medieval Ireland. The more I study it and the more I study its textual forebears or textual relation, um, the more impressive it seems just as a, as a literary feat to me. But in order to be appreciated by scholarship, both within Celtic studies and outside of it, I think a lot more work has to be done on the text um, and on the function of topography and topographic literature in, in general in Ireland. And within the books, you the book, you use various terms to describe the text. And what is the difference between the Din Hunahus Erin and the Din Hunahus? So Dean Hanachas, with a lowercase, is more um, a term which describes place name history more broadly, more generally. Um, it's not so much, some, sometimes people call it a genre of text, but we, it, it's, a little, it's a little more complicated than that. So sometimes you have just cropping up in all sorts of text, the history of a place quite randomly that is added to an episode. So this would be an example of Dean Hanachas. Um, or you have, you know, a text which is primarily dealing with the history of a particular place. That is Dean Hanachas. Um, in distinction that Dean Hanachas Eirin is an anthology of Dean Hanachas narratives, where they're all sort of gathered together under one um, official heading, under one official title, which is why you capitalize it then. And um, the fact that they add Eirin to the end means that they are telling the history of the entire island, not just not just one particular place. Were there any problems that arose when looking at the original manuscripts and or translations in the later commentaries? So for the book, um, because it wasn't an edition of a text, there wasn't all that much manuscript work involved. It was it was more based on um, secondary scholarship, sort of telling the history of uh, scholarship on the text, but also writing about what its, what its worth is as a text, um, what its meaning is, is, as, is as a text. So um, I suppose manuscripts become more an issue when you want to edit, in particular if they have lacuna or if they're stained and you can't read the text um, and you kind of rely on, on other versions, other manuscripts. So for me, I suppose it was more dealing with the editions and translations because whenever I wanted to quote, I actually had to go to... Um, Obviously, go to the editions by by Edward Gwynner or, or Ricky Stokes and actually see if they were accurate. Was there some issue with them? Was there a gap in them? Um, 
was I trying to make a point based on their tradition, which upon closer analysis turned out to be false. So, so these were sort of things to, to, to bear in mind. And I think on a number of occasions, I've, you know, replaced, replaced that translation with my own whenever, whenever that was necessary. And thinking about that, sort of going off that point, has the work of how has the work of past scholars, whether we're talking, and I realize this is early medieval all the way to the mid 20th century, affected our perspective of the text? As for the work of medieval scholars, I think their work has probably affected our perspective the least, because I think it's their voices that have been kind of underappreciated. And I think it was mostly the work of 19th century and then early 20th century scholars, because they were the first to edit the, the, the text and the various components of the Jinhanachas, which has shaped our understanding of the tract as a whole, especially, as I said, the first editors. Um, and of course, this is what we would expect. So they were the first, um, let's say, literary textual archaeologists of this material. Um, if you are the first to tell your story, then it's your version of the story that um, tends to hold currency. And as I um, detail in the second chapter of the book, a lot of scholarship on the Jean Hanches has been quite dismissive from the very beginning. So for the philologists, for instance, the material wasn't early enough. Um, although, as I show later on, there's actually plenty of material to go around for the old Irish aficionado if, you know, if it's the earlier period of the language that interests you more. For the historians, the Jinhanachas is not historical enough. So, though, as I also argue, you can find historical messages encoded in several poems, and the whole text is very firmly embedded within um, that paradigm of Irish synchronistic history that we also find in Levergavala Eirin, for instance. And as for the literary critics, willing to examine the whole text rather than just individual parts on its own merits, I think we're still awaiting their arrival and their assessment, um, myself included. Um, within the book, on pages 1 and 18, specifically I'm taking these words, you describe the corpus as being multifaceted, expansive, and as a macro text. Why did you choose to use these words? So Dean Hanhas is one of the longest texts ever written in medieval Ireland. It literally spans the entire island of Ireland and mentions further places such as Spain, Italy, Gaul or France, um, Scythia, Greece, etc. So I suppose expansive in that sense. Um, as a text, it is not in any way monolithic. So it is multifaceted in the sense that it is very difficult to come up with any general and therefore any generic statements about it. It's not a saga, so it doesn't have a linear plot, although there are kind of connections between episodes which suggest that, um, you know, some sort of temporality between them or some sort of linear logic between them was um, was being imposed. Um, it contains characters from across the literary and historical um, spectrum, gods, heroes, kings, queens, the odd saint, some monsters too. And it is a rather long piece of work, which is the result of a process of compilation of several smaller or shorter episodes. I'm using macro text um, in the sense that Ralph O'Connor has been using it in his, uh, specifically in his monograph on Toggle da Dergo, or the, the um, destruction of the Dergo's hostel, and how Hildegard Tristram has, has used it to describe the long compositions such as Ton Bogulnia and um, Levergavala Erin, which were also the result of a process of compilation possibly following um, a Latin model. 
And then in chapter two, you also describe the text as incomplete. Why is it incomplete? So when I say incomplete, I don't mean that as a flaw or a textual error. Although some manuscripts are missing material, which they likely may have contained at an earlier stage and are therefore incomplete in that sense. Um, the way I, I mean incomplete here is slightly different. So while Jean Henneches Ehren has a very carefully laid out introduction, or an Akesos passage, as we also call it, it has no conclusion, so no or no formal conclusion, at least. Um, in some manuscripts, the last chapter is that on a sacred tree called Billathorton. Um, and this poem takes the form of uh, a conversation between various Irish saints. Perhaps this was meant to be some sort of closing text within the tract originally um, because it's the history of a special tree which is descended from the tree in the Garden of Eden so it's like the tree of trees in a sense um, with which all of humanity um, or all of what it means to be human began so I could see that as a almost like as a very poetic closure but with a specifically Christian message um, but many manuscripts contain material after Billathorton, so where it is not the final, um, the final um, passage. So on, on, even on places which which don't feature anywhere else in the in the tract. And I think that this was because individual Dinhenichel's tracts were compiled to suit the local interests of the people and patrons who sponsored a particular source manuscript or for whom um, they were compiled. This is something that I argue in the case of the Book of Ivania in a volume dedicated to that manuscript, which is going to be published with the Royal Irish Academy next month. Um, so yes, theoretically, the Dinhenichus is a text that is always incomplete because it is always possible with each new compilation to add material on further places or on the, more on the same place to remove or to reshuffle material. And um, the text as such seems to be conceived in a way almost as to invite textual accretion and repeated compilation. And that's exactly what we see play out when we leave the critical editions aside and when we look at the individual manuscripts. And then when looking at the manuscripts, is there a date or dates that we can ascribe to either composition or compilation, since these are about different places? I think it depends which composition or compilation you mean. So in a way, it might be good to even ask um, what kind of answer you're hoping to find at the end of that question. So do you want to come to the conclusion that an original version X was likely compiled in the particular year AD? Um, because that is obviously the standard approach to medieval texts. That's not specific to the Jinhanachas or to, to Irish material. And it absolutely has um, its merits. So we can pick apart with our philological toolkit the linguistic layers of the prose and the verse passages and assign a date to each of them. Um, but I think before we can begin to do that to do that systematically, we need to know what we will do with the end results. So in other words, what will it mean to us if we determine that the earliest version of the Jinhanachas we can reconstruct dates to the um, 12th century or to the 11th century, even to the 13th, which I think might be possible as well. So what is the potential message or meaning then? What did it mean to the 14th and 15th century compilers, for instance, of the Book of Balimot or the Book of Lekin, on the other hand? So we're, from the very beginning, we're faced with this plurality of dates. Um, and um, as I was writing the chapter, the, um, I suppose, the critical input that really came to my mind in that moment was that famous passage from um, Tolkien's The Monsters and the Critics, 
where he talks about, um, I have the passage here, actually. Do you mind if I read it out? Because I don't know it off by heart. No, feel free. Um, let me just go back to it. So, and this is actually a passage that Ralph O'Connor gives at the end of his book on Toggleverdnadadarga, but I think it's just so relevant. So the passage goes, a man inherited a field in which was an accumulation of old stone, part of an older hall. Of the old stone, some had already been used in building the house in which he actually lived, not far from the old house of his father's. Of the rest, he took some and built a tower. But his friends coming perceived at once, without troubling to climb the steps, that these old stones had formerly belonged to a more ancient building. So they pushed the tower over with no little labour in order to look for hidden carvings and inscriptions, or to discover whence the man's distant forefathers had obtained their building material. Some suspecting a deposit of coal under the soil began to dig for it and forgot even the stones. They all said, this tower is most interesting. But they also said, after pushing it over, what a muddle it is. Sorry, I know my text disappeared. Um, I think this is a very striking quote, which can be applied to our current situation as well. So when you pick the Dinhanachas apart and you date its individual components, do you lose sight of the message? Because you can do that. And I think for um, a lot of the components, such as the poems ascribed to particular authors, it's a very worthwhile exercise because um, there is strong reason to believe that these particular components probably had a circulation independent of the uh, Dinhanachas tract and prior to it, and therefore had their own circulation, their own political message, and you can you know, attach it to a particular author. I think when it comes to the compilation, it's almost impossible to determine at what point all the various pieces were put together. And that's the point I'm, I'm making as well. So I'm not suggesting, you know, not to do any philological analysis. It's quite the opposite. I think that's very important. But I think it's really important to bear in mind what we want to get out of that philological analysis. What is what is the message that we, that we um, want to have in the end? It's a very nebulous. It's a very nebulous concept, especially with thinking about dates and with all the different elements and components within in it, and trying to decipher that. And I'm about to actually ask another sort of nebulous question that might not have a very clear answer: is that can any individual authors or be ascribed to particular pieces or groups of pieces? As in, can particular authors be ascribed to just? Um, parts of the Dean Hanachas, like prose or poems. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yes, that is that is a feature. And manuscripts actually do that quite a bit. So ascriptions tend to be confined to the verse sections. The prose is practically always anonymous. And that happens in, in uh, medieval literature in general. We have ascriptions to authors from the 10th and the 11th centuries, and a few from the 12th. Um, and as I just said, this can mean that these poems were probably established as um, texts in their own right before they became absorbed into Dean Hanifas Aaron. But it also allows us to ask why the work of those authors in particular was selected for inclusion. Uh, why not the work of others? Why not other works by the same author? And so on and so forth. So is this always a question of um, textual survival or, or, you know, was there something more to it? So yes, some some pieces are some pieces um, have particular authors. Some of them, well, a lot of them, historical figures that we can trace in the annals. But some are also ascribed to characters like Finn McCool or, um, uh, you know, other legendary characters uh, who sort of act as as the voice of the author, but obviously who weren't weren't the authors themselves. 
And you've already mentioned this briefly, but is there a particular form that the Dean Hennehus take at all? Do they tend to be a bit uniform or are they varied? So within the long tract, Dean Hennehus Aaron tract, you have individual what we call articles or items. Essentially, they're like chapters in a book. Um, sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're not connected. So within each chapter or within each episode, you can have um, different types of formats. You can have just a pro section. You can have a pro section followed by just one quatrain, or you can have a pro section followed by a long poem, by several poems. Um, and occasionally you you just get the poem on its own as well, and like the episode uh, about Billa Thorson that I just mentioned. So this one doesn't have a prose introduction. The most common format is prose plus verse, um, which we call prosimetrum. And this is why Jean Hanukkah's Asian is, is prosimetrical um, for the most part in, in most sources. And then um, within that book, you talk about um, the Roscada and how does that relate to the Dean Hinehas? So the Rosk or Roskath passages um, occur in a handful of episodes or articles, as I just mentioned. They're a funny medium because they're neither prose nor are they the same as the rhyming syllabic poems that we find. So people consider them verse in a sense, consider them poetry in a sense, and they tend to be um, highly literative. Sometimes they have a strict syllable count. They're usually non-rhyming. And in the manuscripts, when they occur, they tend to be part of the prose. So the way the page is laid out, um, where the poem is very clearly set off from the rest of the text, these passages tend to be part of the prose. Uh, Raska that aren't specific to the Dinhanachas, they occur in all sorts of texts, like law tracts, for instance, um, genealogies and saga material as well. They're not uniform, but they're quite difficult to decipher. So they have the reputation, and quite rightfully, to be kind of obscure. They might use arcane vocabulary, perhaps just particularly learned vocabulary that we don't have attested in other texts. Um, sometimes they have a kind of a complicated sentence structure or they might come across as convoluted. So they are more difficult. Um, and in some cases, they might actually underlie the whole episode, so the whole sort of Tinhanachas article as a whole, so the, the the surrounding prose and then the rhyming poetry may be based on them. But very little research has been done on them within the Tinhanachas specifically. And some of them haven't even been translated because... So far, some of the editors have given up on them um, on account of on account of their difficulty. Um, and then, do these pieces do they tend to be independent from the larger works they are in, such as the Book of Lekin, um, or are they integrated with the other texts that appear within these manuscripts? So, um, as I said, they're usually part of the prose. So, with, within the Dean Hanachas. And you, you have your Dean Hanachas episode, you have, you have the prose introduction, then you might have a Rosk or Rosk passage, and then you have a poem. Um, I have seen one example of a Rosk passage being written in the margin of another manuscript, which contained no Dean Hanachas material, but which um, on that particular page was thematically related to the Dean Hanachas episode in which that Rosk passage normally occurs. So... Either it was sort of lifted out of that Dean Hennechus passage, 
unwritten in that margin, or again, like some of the poems, if the Ross passages are older specifically, they could have had independent circulation as well. So this happens, for instance, um, in there's a Ross passage again in in that uh, text I mentioned, Tochwag Ever that I studied for my PhD, uh, which in the um, earlier version seems to have. Or which in the in the sorry which in the Middle Irish version was included in the text was embedded in the text but also had independent circulation of that text. It thematically belonged to it but it was separate from it. And I think with the Tinhanachal Roskada um, we may have a similar situation at hand in that they now only survive as part of the tract, but they may have been um, kind of independent texts originally as well. Um, in addition to talking about the different types of texts that appear, you also discuss both etymology, the study of word origins and their meanings over time, and also etiology, the ascriptions of the cause of something told through myth or history. How does studying both etymology and etiology add to a greater understanding of the Dean Hennehus? So essentially, Dean Hennehus is place-based etiology. So we found find out about the origins of important places and we find out what force or what event or what action caused them to be or to be named in a particular way. Etymology in the Isidorian sense of the word is like a lexical type of etiology. Um, we know that the medieval Irish scholars absolutely loved Isidore's etymologies, um, which they called the culmen or the, the pinnacle of all learning, and for which they traded their own epic, Ton Bogulnia, in exchange. So Isidore, I think, is a little bit like salted caramel or a smashed avocado in that suddenly it's everywhere, it's in everything, and it's it's everyone's favorite intellectual flavor. Um, and because the etymologies had such a profound impact on the medieval Irish mind, reading and studying Isidore can absolutely help you understand medieval Irish literature, especially texts like Levergovala Asian, Dean Hanchas Asian, and um, the treatise on names called Kor Unman, or Fitness of Names. Um, all these originally stem from the same monastic scholarly milieu, which, um, among several other um, classical and late antique sources, just swallowed Isidore wholesale. So thinking about these... Um looking at um, these aspects, what kind of origins do the place names have? And are there a certain type of name? Do they vary or? Um, very often places are named after a person, um, an eponymous figure who dies at the spot. And then this event gives rise to the place name. Um, so essentially, this is what turns space, something which is uninhabited and untouched into place, something that, that has contact with humans or with supernatural figures. Every narrative has its own way of turning space into place, but there are a few formulae which can be observed across a number of uh, articles. So a common theme with um, hills and plains, for instance, is um, land clearing and specifically deforestation. So um, Plains which have been cleared or deforested through manual labor will then be named after the person who cleared them, such as a builder or um, a servant of a particular dynasty or group of people. Then you have uh, hydronyms, so water-based names, which unsurprisingly feature a lot of drowning stories. Um, sometimes they're caused because the person 
transgressed against nature or because they transgressed against a particular taboo. Um, one of the most striking examples of this are actually two interrelated stories, the stories of Lochri and Loch Nechach or Loch Ne, um, which are named after the brothers Ri and Echu. And both of these lakes are formed from the urine of a supernatural horse because the horse was left unattended by the two eponymous characters. So um, you, you do you do get a couple of sort of repetitive formulas, um, but what most often tends to happen is that you have a particular person, they die at that spot, and the spot is named after them. And with those stories, how did you choose which articles to include in the book? Um, I suppose, for the most part, I think I just chose texts which seemed to be illustrating whatever point I was trying to make. So I wasn't going through the Dean Hanahus kind of one, which are my favorites. I must make sure to include all of them. Um, naturally, I suppose I, I um, um, tended to include stories from the beginning of the tract simply because they were better studied or because the places were better known. So it's easier to refer to places which you can actually localize on a modern map. It's, it's a bit harder if you have to explain, well, this is a place um, that we don't really know anything about. So I, I, I suppose I favored places that were famous, like Tara, like Dublin, like um, particular mountains or plains. But for the most part, I, I, I yeah, I, I simply wanted to um, illustrate particular points and and sort of chose the text according accordingly. No, that that makes complete that makes complete sense. So, um, how you in the book you describe the Dean Hinehus as a symbiosis of etymology and um, senhus, the historical lore. Why did you describe them as as uh, Why did you choose and describe them as a symbiosis? It struck me in the scholarship that um, the issue of etymology versus shanachas was cast like an either-or scenario. When etymology, in the sense that I described, so in the in the Isidorian sense, was actually a fundamental feature of medieval Irish historiography. So again, Lavergaval is a great example to illustrate um, that point. And um, in a sense, etymology is is the the history or the origin of of a word or term or name. So you could say it's it's the shanachas of, of words, and therefore it just seemed like the, the two were meant to fit together um, in, in the first place. And thinking of the um, medieval Irish literature, how do the stories of the Dean Hennehus compare to other um, medieval Irish literature? Um you mean in the scholarship or in in just in terms of other texts? Scholarship or other texts, whichever you... Um, I suppose that's quite difficult to answer succinctly. So I mentioned that Dean Hanachas um, as a topic and then Dean Hanachas Eirn as a text are both quite understudied in comparison to, let's say, texts and genres such as the Ulster Cycle, um, which for which perhaps more modern editions exist and which in general just have attracted more attention. Um, it, I also found in the literature that the Dinhanichos often seem to be pitted against any of these texts and was just used to see how well or not it compares to them. So um, points I mentioned previously, you know, how 
how old is the text or how old is the te- isn't the text in in other words um it's been described as derivative it's sort of been described as secondary and um i think sometimes that assessment is unfair and i think that closer study of not just the individual episodes in the genres but the the genres asian as a whole will will hopefully uh, in the future further sort of um clarify and illustrate its its own worth as as a piece of literature i completely agree just because from reading the book there's so many ov- there are overlaps with other stories within medieval irish literature and there's different elements that sort of complement each other yeah um, you talk about um, within looking at these articles and these stories. Are these are they much about the time they are written in? Because they're talks talking sort of about the past, or as they are much about the present, about the time in which they are written. Um, I think we're quite safe to operate with the assumption that the past is usually invoked because it resonates with the present. Um, so I mentioned already the poems which are ascribed to particular authors. Um, these are very much ascribed to particular authors because these authors were working for patrons in um, the 10th or the 11th centuries and um, were, were using essentially topographical history to make a contemporary point. And I think it's also been said um about the Irish, that they like to take the history in the form of literature. So this is very much a principle that I think is at play in the Dean Hanhas as well. And just because a text may contain a historical message, contemporary with the time of writing, does not detract from any literary quality, um, in, in my opinion. I think fundamentally this is about our conceptual separation of functionality, um, on the one hand, and aesthetics whereby history is perceived as functional and it should be unadorned and literature is seen as the opposite, as artful, whimsical, humorous, and so on. Um, Ralph O'Connor, whom I've already mentioned, has actually written a great chapter addressing this very issue in a previous volume in the Cork Studies in Celtic Literature series dealing with Irish historical tales, which is is very well um, worth reading, where he goes into the history of that kind of conceptual separation how and how we, we, can, we can kind of tackle it. And thinking about um, the original text, if listeners are interested in reading the text either in Middle Irish or in translation, what would you recommend? So at present, if you want to read either parts or all of Jean Hanach's Asian in the original Middle Irish, you uh, have to go to the editions by Whitley Stokes um, for the prose which were published in the Journal Revue Celtique volumes 15 and 16, as well as in volumes uh, three and four of the journal Folklore. Um, For the poems, you have to separately consult the editions of Edward Gwynne, which were published um, by the uh, Royal Irish Academy and then the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. All of these can also be found on archive.org for free. Um, And Gwynne's editions have also been digitized by um, the Celt Project hosted at University College Cork and they all contain facing page translations into English so they're they're outdated but they're there they're freely accessible um, as long as you know where to find them um, and how to navigate them um, why is this then 
a valuable work for people, both those who study medieval Irish literature and those in other subject areas to read and study? So for people who are studying medieval Irish literature, the Dean Hanachas is one of um, the major literary works of the medieval period. It is longer than Tongue and it more than holds its candle compared to Agalof Nashinorach as well, both in length and in, in complexity. It is closely linked with Lebregovala Asian, as I mentioned a few times, um, another fundamental or foundational text. And to me, I think the Dinhanachus is a bit like Ireland's mind palace. So the literary place where they stored all their knowledge, where they stored all the political hopes and dreams of several dynasties, whether successful or unsuccessful, where they stored episodes and narrative pieces of sagas, which do not appear in those sagas themselves. And um, to me, it is the essentially the mirror of a highly articulated, uh, or high, sorry, a highly articulate and sophisticated civilization at their intellectual peak. Um, and I think this is what I would hope scholars from other fields as well as from Celtic studies take away from it. It's a, it, it's definitely, I know I've used it very briefly in my work, but I, I think it's work that it impacts all different areas and more scholars, both outside of reading medieval Irish literature should definitely um, yeah. work. Absolutely. Um, and I know you said this, this before that you didn't incorporate, you didn't pick articles based on whether they were your favorite or not, but do you have a favorite article or story from the work or works? That's a really hard one. Um, I have several favorites, but I think there's one which I think is quite clever. Well, there's several which I want, which I think are clever and funny, but I think there's one that is particularly funny. Um, so in the Dean Hanachas of a place called Karn Mile, so the, the Karn of, of the prince, something like that, or of the ruler, um, which I think is in County Louth, um, we have a story which predicts the glory of the Irish king Lugath Macon. Lugath Macon kind of occurs in other Irish historical texts. And uh, it tells us what happens to his father, Lugath Lichte. So he's the, the ancestor of another um, dynasty. In some cases, the two of them are conflated, but in this particular account, they're father and son. So Lugath Lichte and his brothers were sitting uh, inside by the fire um, and a hideous old hag, which is described in grotesque detail, enters uninvited and she demands to sleep with one of them and Lugath obliges and suddenly she turns into this beautiful young woman. And here you may think, oh, well, I know this one. This is a very classic um, story motif in Irish literature, that king and goddess theme that we find in other texts where, you know, the, the sovereignty of Ireland appears to the future ruler um, and some others uh, as, as a hideous old woman, but only the future king will sacrifice himself and sleep with her. And then she, she turns all beautiful and um, then they sleep together. Um, but that's not quite what's happening here. So the poet seems to make kind of a complete mockery out of this motif and turns it on its head. So the hag um, comes in and says, you know, I need one of you to sleep with me. But she also says, if you don't, I will eat all of you and your dogs. So then um, Logoth gets up and says, okay, well, I will take one for the team. 
and um, uh, sort of sacrifice myself because apparently he doesn't think he's going to survive that experience. And he says, well, you know, it's better if just I die than all of us die. Um, and then, yes, the hag transforms into this beautiful young woman and tells him that she is the sovereignty of, of Ireland and Alva. It's quite interesting as well. Usually it's just, just Ireland. So Lugeth is delighted because uh, he thinks he'll be king and he gets to sleep with a beautiful young woman. Um, except that she says, hang on, I'm not going to sleep with you. <laughs> Instead, I will sleep with your son, who's not born yet, but will be born eventually. And he's going to be great and he's going to be the king of Ireland. So, um, you know, thanks for that. But bye for now. Um, and to me, the scene represents a very rare glimpse of medieval Irish literary criticism. So contemporary literary criticism. We get very little of that. Uh, and I think it's quite humorous. Um, to me, it seems that the the um, author of the poem, so if we think that, the, again, this was a poem that circulated independently of the Gintana's Corpus um, before. So the author of this poem clearly took this motif of the king and the goddess um, was aware of the fact that it was already a literary trope and then turned it on turned it on its head and had a little fun with it. And I think that's what makes this this episode so brilliant. I absolutely love that and I love the creativity and you're able to see a little bit into the thought process of the author into yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Um in the in lieu of a conclusion section, because you don't actually you don't include a conclusion, it's in lieu of a conclusion. You allude to not being able to cover everything. Was there anything that you really wanted to include, a type of analysis or an article, but did not have the room? Oh, I think about a million things. Um, because the series is designed for short studies, and I, I already went over the allotted word count, there were lots of topics that I wasn't able to cover. Um, Recently, I've been researching the impact of Irish engagement with classical sources on the way the uh, origin of Irish places is conceptualized. Um, I have a chapter forthcoming in a volume published by Bloomsbury on how the former Royal, Royal Centre Tara was essentially cast as the Irish Thebes. Um, so then there was also a, an entire section cut out of the book, which uh, looked at the relationship between the Henneris and the Irish glossarial tradition, so kind of glossaries, compilations of uh, lexical items drawn from texts. Um, but this is something that I will probably have a chance to look at at the Celtic Congress later this year. Um, I think in general, I felt I had to prioritise issues such as sort of source material and genre and correct taxonomy um, because I wanted to give readers a good starting point and to kind of cover all the scholarship to essentially bring them with me up to speed so they can then go on and, you know, do other fun things with the material. Um, but I suppose I, I, in terms of what could have gone in, I, you know, I have enough for, for another volume um, already. Um, no, I, and I would look forward, Fred, look forward to that. With the readers in mind, what is the one thing that you hope readers take away from reading your book? One thing... Um... I think the most important thing to me is that readers will see that this text, this material is studying, is worth studying um, on its own merit in its own right, and that it has merit as literature. So I hope the book will be a good step in that direction. And then 
based on what have you you've done, where do you hope the future of Dean Hunaha's studies go? I suppose the most important desideratum is a new and integrated edition of Dean Hunaha's era. So integrated in the sense that the prose and the verse, which has been published separately, is is combined. Well, no, it's not even a, a question of combining it because it was already one in the manuscript. So that it is it is edited in the way that the manuscripts depict it. Um, the reason I highlight this type of kind of traditional editorial uh, scholarship is because it is often forgotten how fundamental it is to everything that happens to a text afterwards. So uh, how well are they studied? How visible or well-known are they beyond their field of origin or even within their field of origin? Um, the, the quality of the edition also impacts how well-received a text is. So I think this is, this is the most important uh, thing. Luckily... The project I'm involved in with Marnie um, Wainig and, and David Mackay is doing just that because we're producing um, new editions from the, uh, of the Dinhanachas from several manuscripts, such as the Book of Balimot, the Book of Ivani, and the Book of Lekhen, and we're also producing translations. So um, we, yeah, we, we hope to we hope to um, make it make it an important contribution um, to to that field of study. I'm really excited and I'm looking forward to that. Um, do you have any, I know you just mentioned one and you've mentioned others within the podcast, but do you have any future ongoing projects that you'd like to mention? Um, of course. So I have um, an edited volume coming out on the Dean Hennechus and kind of Irish place names more broadly. Um, that's a, a volume which is the conference proceedings from an event that I organized at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies in 2017 um, and contains 14 chapters on various aspects of Jean Hannachas Aaron specifically or Jean Hannachas sort of and topography more broadly, which I hope will be published uh, by the Institute um, in due course. I already mentioned our Dean Hannachus project. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Dean Hannachus. That is the only time you will need to know how to spell it with N-D and S-H. Um, so you can follow us there for any events or news or stories from the Dean Hannachus. We did um, an advent calendar over the, the Christmas period where we had like a little story for each of the 24 days as well. So sometimes we do things like that. Um, you can also sign up for a talk that my colleague David Mackay is going to do um, on Dean Hannachus and genealogies next Tuesday. Again, if you go onto our Twitter page, you can find the registration link uh, there. Um, next month, I'll be speaking about the role of the Tuathede Danan in the formation of the Irish landscape at a conference in uh, UCC on the Tuathede Day, um, on the Tuathede Day, which is organised by the Department of Modern Irish, and then. Later that month, I'll be giving another talk, actually, in the Department of Celtic Languages and Literatures at Harvard. I'll be looking at possible Arthurian influence on, on Irish um, topographic literature. And if um, any of the listeners are coming to the Celtic Congress in Utrecht later this year, our project will have a session on various topics to do with Nihelichus. So, as I mentioned, mine will be kind of looking at the glossary tradition. Um, and I'll also be involved at a roundtable event uh, at the Congress where I look at the way female figures, such as the hideous hag in the poem, <laughs> are portrayed um, in, in the Jean Hannafus and just Irish topographic literature more broadly. So lots, lots of interesting things happening. Well, I'm really excited with all the publications and all the lectures, and I, I can't wait to register myself for them. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. This was really great. Thank you. 
Dr. Marie Louise Tyerkoff's book, Den Dean Hennehes, Aaron, is a part of the series Quirk Studies in Celtic Literatures. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to Notebooks on Irish Studies on the New Books Network website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow the project up on Twitter, as was previously said, follow Dean Hennehes, D-I-N-D-S-H-E-N-C-H-A-S on Twitter. Until next time, stay safe and keep reading.